欢迎收听 FEI Podcast， 台湾工商界最信任的美国政策分析报道。Hello, welcome to FEI's Weekend Policy Brief, where we talk about policy issues concerning U.S.-Taiwan commercial and strategic relations. We are proudly serving policymakers, national security community, and enthusiasts who have been listening to our program. I am your host Eric. Today, I have a special guest on our show, Mr. Ian Robertson from the Atlantic Council, and we are going to chat about China and disinformation. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Eric. I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to、uh, be talking about China today. It's my honor to introduce Ian to our listeners. Ian is a very good friend of mine, and he's currently the deputy managing editor at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, where they work on identifying and exposing disinformation. Prior to joining the think tank. He held a number of positions within the Obama administration, including the National Security Council. Ian and his team at the Atlantic Council just recently published four papers detailing China's disinformation strategy and the evidence of their meddling in foreign politics. So, Ian, in today's news, I see these two words being used a lot: disinformation and misinformation. They sound very similar. In fact, they're off by just one letter. So, what's the difference between them? That is a great question. When we talk about disinformation and misinformation, it is a question of intent. Disinformation is the purposeful spread of malinformation in order to influence the audience. Misinformation is the unintentional spread of bad information. So, we think about disinformation. We think about Certain outlets that explicitly misconstrue、uh, arguments. It does not necessarily have to be untrue. It could be just highly spun in a way that the understanding is distorted.、Uh, the audience will receive a message that is not accurate.、Uh, so you can think about news outlets like OANN,、uh, which is. Just a quick apology. Most of my、uh, examples here are going to be U.S. centric, just because it's very fresh right now, and it is very so close to me personally. That said, I do know a lot about China, having、uh, worked at the National Security Council and、uh, managed these reports.、Uh, so, going back to the question, disinformation. OANN is a is a disinformation source in the United States. It produces. Articles that are not accurate. Recently, they've been pushing a lot of narratives around election fraud in the 2020 election, for example. Misinformation is your friend on Facebook who sees a story, doesn't really think about it critically, and posts it to their timeline. I would also add, within this category, there is fake news and propaganda.、Uh, they are associated to misinformation and disinformation. Fake news is an older concept of Fake news articles being generated, but 
we at the DFR lab do not like to use the term anymore because of the way it was misappropriated and misapplied beginning around 2016 with the rise of Donald Trump and him calling fake news. And it's now sort of become a pejorative that is a rallying cry for supposed persecution. Propaganda is political in nature most often. And it doesn't necessarily need to be incorrect information, but it's biased. It's intention is to sway the listener toward whatever state uh, run position it is um, the last thing I would say it is important to disaggregate disinformation from foreign influence foreign influence is a sort of a broader category and disinformation is a tactic uh, foreign influence is the intention to affect change in a foreign country within a foreign audience. Uh, we saw that, for example, in 2016 and 2018 with Russia's attempts to meddle in the U.S. elections. One final point, we also need to acknowledge how technology has changed the landscape in terms of how information is spread. The in, with the rise of the internet and social media in particular, it has made it possible for anybody to interact with people in other countries at speed and at scale. So if Russia is intent on influencing the United States, as I mentioned, they can just go on Facebook and create a fake account and start interacting with a user in America and start trying to have a conversation that ultimately leads to a change in opinion. Let's say if I create a malicious content and I send it to my parents, who do not have political agenda, but trust everything that I say. In turn, they forward it to their friends and relatives. So from their end, this information becomes misinformation. It sounds like innocent people can get caught up in this and become not just victims, but also accomplices. Is that true? That is absolutely correct. That is a great understanding. It is a spectrum. And I think I would even be willing, I, I'm basing this purely on anecdotal evidence and what I've seen. I would be willing to argue that a majority of the bad information flowing around the internet is being spread as misinformation. I will get to that a little bit later, actually. But um, I think you are very right in the sense that Disinformation can, be, can become misinformation very quickly. While we're talking about this, could you walk us through what are some special defining characteristics or unifying patterns that you see in disinformation? How do I spot disinformation? That is a fantastic question again. So I would maybe fight the premise of the question slightly. I would say there's only one truly broadly unifying pattern across disinformation, which is the intent to deceive. Uh, other than that, each case is different, each um, tactic is different, so it's hard to really necessarily define the characteristics or a pattern as wholly encompassing. You have to look at it more individually. There, It is helpful to think about trends and the way information is trending and, and how disinformation is applied because it is disinformation is always evolving there are trends with different types of disinformation there are trends with different platforms things like that when i when i say platform by the way i'm referring to an online space usually designated as an individual company like facebook 
but they can also be sub companies because Instagram, for example, is a part of Facebook. So when I talk about platforms, we're talking about Facebook, Twitter. In, in the case of Taiwan, we're talking about Dcard, for example. With that, when we talk about trends,、uh, I would say one of the most significant one right now is a move toward the spread of bad information, whether it's disinformation or misinformation, domestically, having a domestic origin. In 2016 and 2018, in the United States, Russia was known to have interfered. But as time has moved on, the conversation about how that How the information is flowing around in the United States, at least, and this is representative in Taiwan as well, as well as everywhere in the world, pretty much. It's more coming from inside the house now. It's a very large trend where all a foreign entity, if they're intent on meddling, all they need to do is sort of light a match and throw it into the room, and then it will just start a fire, and they can walk away because the fire is going to spread without their help. Thinking about it that way, the pump the pump is primed right now for the spread of bad information.、Uh, going back to the U.S., as I said,、uh, QAnon is a great example of this recent trend. It's a conspiracy built around misinformation and disinformation,、uh, and the way that is spread is very organic, meaning there's not. A lot of artificial involvement with Russia, trying Russian bots, the ever-threatening Russian bots, really manipulating the conversation. They don't need to. They can, QAnon has taken on a life of its own. American people are being consumed by it, and they are the ones spreading it,、uh, and to a point where it's now an international phenomenon. Could you provide us an example of how sites such as QAnon manufacture disinformation? Disinformation around QAnon is one thing. It's a little bit too complicated to explain、uh, because the way that it is, it is a conspiracy theory that just operates in this sort of amorphous、uh, space. I would, I will instead point to an earlier investigation that we performed at the DFR lab,、uh, led by Ben Nimmo, who's now at Graphica,、uh, that we labeled secondary infection. It takes its name. From a 1980s and 90s Soviet operation that spread the idea that the United States was the origin of the HIV virus. More recently, what we found, what we, what we called Operation Secondary Infection, was Ben found some,、uh, some of these fringe websites, these posts that were appearing. With authentic-looking government documents, there was a post from that supposedly was a, a U.S. aid administrator writing to some other country. And what ends up, what the operators of this information did, they were trying to make some claim, and they took this authentic-looking document, put it on a fringe website, and then they had Facebook accounts that would post it. And then those Facebook accounts would then get picked up by less fringe websites, and they would amplify it.、Uh, amplifying meaning turning up the engagement, making it more prevalent. And then it sort of ping-ponged between social media and these fringe websites, so that in an attempt to make this fake document become legitimate, to make it 
actually be a political problem for the U.S. government because it was supposedly a U.S. aid administrator making some claim that was not at all in the realm of reality. Um, so what ends up happening, and this happens all around the world, is you have these fringe websites that are the source of some dubious claim that some bad actor on social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Decart or Weibo or wherever, they will take it from this one website, put it into those channels, pass it around, and what ends up happening is if it's popular and if it's legitimate seeming enough, it will just slowly make its way up the food chain and eventually you might end up having mainstream news organizations pick up on a claim. Um, thankfully, with Operation Secondary Infection, that did not happen. I do invite any interested reader, though, to <laughs> a listener, to look at the, our report on secondary infection, which details a number of similar instances at length of an official-seeming document being amplified. Thankfully, as I mentioned, none of them were very successful. You know, Ian, today is actually great timing that you join us on the show. Let's take a look back at 2020. In January last year, Taiwan had its presidential election. And China attacked fiercely with disinformation, in addition to military pressure, to try to sway the public opinion in favor of China's worldview. After the election, the COVID pandemic started. China again tried to use disinformation to alter worldwide discourse around the disease. And then later that year, we had our Black Lives Matter protests, and then the U.S. presidential election season, followed by. A series of voting fraud allegations, and lastly, the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. So, unsurprisingly, China took advantage of the situation and fueled divisive tension among the U.S. public. One thing that I want to bring up is that, in an effort that is less known to Americans, China was spreading disinformation in Taiwan about the instability. In the U.S. and the possibility of U.S. abandoning the alliance. Now that President Joe Biden has been inaugurated and people have finally calmed down a little bit from the election, so let's talk about what a busy year China just had. What is the reasoning behind China's disinformation campaign against the U.S. and other democracies? Why are they doing this, and how are they doing this? So China is a really unique case, I think, on the global stage because it is an ascended great power. It doesn't really want to roil the waters too much,、um, and it's kind of helpful also to think about China and its approach to information in two separate aspects. First, the domestic its domestic information environment and its and the its approach to external and、uh, information environments. So everything outside of China. Mainland China, I should specify. Domestically, there's not a lot that is unknown in the sense that it's pretty well known that the CCP controls the informa- information environment so rigidly that populists, unless they're technologically adept and use things like VPNs to circumvent the Great Firewall, the populists will only see what the party wants it to see. Uh, one tr- one evolution we have seen recently in terms of domestically is a move from more passive control, where they're removing unfavorable、um, 
posts about the CCP or directing it at the government to a more proactive messaging push where they are instead intentionally pushing messaging to toward its populace. Um, a good example, which we detail in our Discourse Power report, is how they use Weibo's trending topics list. Um, for a long time, Twitter and Weibo and a lot of these platforms have trending topic lists where if something is being discussed a lot, the algorithms that manage the conversation pick up on it. And this is one of the reasons why hashtags exist in the first place is that you can consolidate those conversations. If they are being talked about at volume, they make it into a, like, a, like a top 10 list of the most popular topics talk, being talked about right now. And that is all organic. But if the conversation in terms of the CCP, if the conversation is not where they want it to be, if there's a particular topic that they want to be discussed, they wouldn't necessarily see it on the trending topics list. So what they ended up doing, the CCP came to Weibo and said, we want you to create a spot at the top of the trending topics list, above number one, where we can put our preferred campaign message and try to make that trend. Uh, so that is an explicit example of domestically how they're trying to influence the conversation. Once you go outside of mainland China, it's an entirely different story. And I will say that we need to separate Hong Kong and Taiwan from the rest of the world because China's approach, as you know very well, is very much about how they believe it to be their, these two, those two places to be their territory. Um, so their intention when it comes to approaching uh, those two places is very much about direct interference. But that said, the people in Hong Kong and in Taiwan are both very well versed and, and very skeptical about Chinese uh, information operations. So I think in that way, you are actually better prepared to take them on. Um, let's Let's back up beyond Hong Kong and Taiwan. And let's look at what China considers its discourse power. It's a philosophy that comes out of China's perception of the outside world. In particular, it sees a wary eye looking at it from many in the richest, put differently, the Western countries, have toward China's growth and rise on the world stage. And China feels compelled to counter this wariness with pro-China messaging. So what that means when it comes to discourse power, it can be distilled down to the idea that first and foremost, China wants to boost itself and its political system at all opportunities. When those opportunities are not possible or just not useful, it pivots and it attempts to diminish the perception of its counterparts, its adversaries. Um, for example, the United States is clearly, it is the great world power as well. Its GDP is still the largest, although not for very long. So it is a primary target. So if China cannot boost, then it pivots to diminish. When it comes to boosterism, what China wants to do is get other countries on its side. This is notionally more effective in societies that need the resources that China can provide. So thinking about the Belt and Road Initiative and how it targets Africa, 
when it comes to providing those countries resources and infrastructure, clearly that those societies are going to look more favorably toward China because they're providing them some really valuable things. A good example of this in terms of boosterism is mask diplomacy. This was at the outset, at the outbreak of COVID, China used the opportunity to publicize the resources it was providing to countries around the world in fighting the pandemic, while it, while simultaneously it was ignoring within its messaging the culpability China itself had for its spread in the original outbreak. Conversely, as I mentioned, when it comes to boosterism, there's the opposite. There's diminishing. So, when it comes to diminishing. You have two complementary goals. First, similar、uh, to the boosterism, it is more effective to try to affect negatively the perceptions about other countries in those societies that require Chinese resources or that、uh, benefit most from Chinese resources. This they see as a means of instilling favoritism toward the Chinese political system at the expense of democracies in particular. And in the same messaging, the other main goal, the complementary goal, is to weaken the perceptions of the counterpart counterpart countries. And even within those countries, they attempt to weaken them in some way. They want to destabilize public support for the government's positions, especially around China.、Um, so, to close this out, as far as whether these tactics are becoming more sophisticated, as far as Whether they are evolving, I would say yes and no. I would argue that China is not terribly novel in the way it spreads disinformation. It hasn't really shown that it's doing anything significantly unique. But I do believe that its its messaging is becoming more sophisticated, more intentional, in the sense that its messaging used to be more obvious. It used to be easier to spot it because it was almost always about China and always. It was always favorable toward China, and the grammatical language、uh, errors and things like that in foreign languages would be relatively evident. Simultaneously, I would say it's also becoming more intentional in the sense that, in the past few years, we've actually seen more CCP official accounts being maintained on Western social media platforms as well as the Chinese language、uh, platforms. Some of these accounts are known to spread disinformation. For example, the Chinese ambassador to, ambassador to the United States used his Twitter account at one point last year to promote a theory that COVID was U.S. in origin, that it was developed in the U.S. and brought to Wuhan because of the military games. The tricky part here is that. When he did so, he didn't actually say that this was the cause. It was more posting an article that made that claim, and then saying, "Hmm, look at that." So there's plausible deniability. He's not saying that this is exactly what happened, but he is saying, "Look, that's interesting." In one of the papers DFR Lab published, you specifically looked at China's interference in Taiwan's 2018 midterm elections and 2020 presidential election. What did you guys find? First, I will actually say that we weren't, as the DFR lab wasn't very active when it came to the 2018 elections,、uh, though other researchers did find some pretty interesting findings. Paul Huang, for example, wrote an article for Foreign Policy
in which he detailed a coordinated network on Facebook and LinkedIn that helped promote uh, the candidate Han Kuo Yu, and my apologies if I mispronounce any of this, um, in the 2018 mayoral election. Uh, and the suspected the network was suspected to be associated with China. It, again, it's suspected. That doesn't mean that it actually was Chinese, but it could have been connected in some way, indirectly or directly. The conclusion was that it was associated with. Uh, I will say, when we come to talking about these things, we our language tends to be very intentional to avoid inaccurately attributing responsibility. So. A good example of this is the other side, um, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this name, but although Suchi, the Suchi Chung incident was often cited as an example of a Chinese information operation, it was actually a prominent supporter of the DPP who was ultimately held culpable and charged by a court in Taipei with hiring internet trolls to criticize Su. Um, so, sort of a double-edged sword. We did find some association with China and some where blame was cast at China, but the end result was actually that it was domestic. For 2020, we saw limited obvious activity that was 100% targeted at China. China. Most of their influence efforts were mostly done through mainstream media co-option, meaning direct funding of mainstream media organizations so that they would produce favorable stories about China. Um, That said, there were a number of things that were within the Chinese language space and related to Taiwan and inevitably would influence Taiwan, would have an impact in Taiwan. On YouTube, the DFR Lab found a list of channels that were spreading propaganda. They all had similar features that allowed us to connect them together to demonstrate that they were appeared to be a network so they had similar cover photos on the videos similar content they were filled with uh, disinformation their headlines were were emotive meaning put differently a term that you may have heard is clickbait they were designed to encourage users to click um, and they all claimed to be some form of news with a narrator that never showed the face, showed his or her face um, on Facebook, we saw content farms. So content farms are a cheap and easy way for the production of disinformation. Uh, it's, an out, it's a way for a government or some other entity to maintain plausible deniability and distance from the operation. They pay a firm to generate the type of content that they are seeking to, that they would otherwise seek to produce themselves. Uh, In this case, content farms tend to pay by submission. So they say, we just want this type of stuff and anybody can write something that is disinformation or misinformation or true for that matter and submit it to the content farm. And then the content farm will push it out into the social media sphere on their Facebook page or uh, inauthentic Facebook pages Um, Not in this particular case were there inauthentic that we found, but it is a way to cheaply create content and maintain a uh, plausible deniability. So in this particular case, we did find one content farm or one or two that were linked back to a CCP 
uh, affiliated businessmen in China. Finally, I would say in terms of not the Western uh, platforms, not YouTube, not Facebook, but on Weibo, we did see information campaigns targeting primarily a mainland Chinese audience, but they still went viral in Taiwan, although most often those would come with (laughs) harsh criticism. And there was a spillover effect on Weibo as well with domestic Chinese internet users um, who were prompted to flood social media accounts outside of Weibo to get a narrative to trend, um, get a story to trend. So you can think about in 2016, there was an operation that started on Weibo uh, and was organized on Weibo to flood Tsai Ing-wen's Facebook page. Um, there was the t-shirt conversation with Versace and Coach um, in which they posted uh, in a way that made it seem like Taiwan was an independent country and then China got mad and so China flooded the Chinese uh, Weibo users flooded the Facebook pages and other social media Um, Instagram in particular assets for Versace and Coach. Uh, I would say overall what we saw in 2020 was that we don't think that there was much impact of what we found. Overall it was low engagement. Low engagement. Engagement means the likes, the retweets, the shares, um, the comments. And there is not much correlation when it comes to high engagement having a high impact. It's impossible to determine impact. Uh, you can find it anecdotally, but the, to have evidentiary in, um, support for impact is really difficult to do for anything we do. What we can make a relatively safe assumption is if there's low engagement, there's likely low impact of something because it just hasn't spread. One of the reasons for this low engagement, we believe, is, and as I mentioned before, is that the Taiwanese audience is very skeptical of pro-China messaging. I'll conclude on this question by answering one that you didn't ask, which is what did Taiwan do right in the 2020 election? I think we can look toward the domestic platforms, Dcard and PTT, as an example of good responses knowing that there was going to be disinformation coming their way from China in particular. Uh, Ahead of 2020, both of those platforms implemented more strict monitoring for disinformation, and they were also stricter about um, filtering out users, whether it was um, the policies that they had around new users joining or how frequently a user could post an original post, things like this actually, we believe, curtailed some to some degree the spread of disinformation on those platforms. You mentioned that these operations have seen low engagement and low impact. But recent trends also suggest that their tactics and messages are evolving and their efforts intensifying on a global scale, whether it's by state actors or affiliates or Chinese volunteers. What policy recommendations do you have for the U.S. government to counter disinformation from China? I will start by saying this: my answers to this question are going to be my personal opinions. This is not in any way related to the work we did. Um, first, 
I would say overall governments just need to enact policies. It should not be left up to social media companies, for example, that are operating the platforms to determine um, necessarily what comprises the action that they should take. Uh, for example, the U.S. has some has some of the least restrictive free speech policies in the world, um, meaning that they are that free speech is widely defined, and what that has ended up leading to is a misunderstanding, whether it's deliberate or not, of what free speech means. So when Twitter removed Trump, the supporters argued that it was an infringement of his First Amendment rights, of his free speech rights. And as currently written, the U.S. government cannot infringe on free speech. But companies, however, have no obligation to allow somebody a platform to spread hate and incite violence or even to just post puppy pictures. Companies have no obligation to allow any user to post anything at all. If they want to ban puppy pictures, they absolutely can and they have every right to do it. So the government, however, needs to provide a framework for companies to make these decisions with government backing, but it's also tricky to do so because especially in wavering democracies, uh, places like Hungary, for example, or Poland, where we've seen uh, co-option of the mainstream press, um, who controls the levers of power can significantly affect how a government framework is applied. And you have real danger and over-application, and the end result is someplace like China, where you have strict information control in, in the populace is only fed what the government wants the populace to hear and that of course is highly problematic because what the populace hears does not necessarily need to be true um, so what that looks like is still wide open i don't have a good answer for it i don't i think that is the big question right now is what can government do uh, such that it can actually help companies control the problematic content that appears on their platforms. We're still working on that. I will say that there are some other things that policy-wise it could potentially have an impact. I believe that penalties for governments meddling in other countries, uh, democratic processes in particular, should be severe. Uh, Russia is still meddling in part because the penalties for their interference in 2016 and 2018 in the United States were not very harsh, if at all. So that is one avenue where government can at least have a, have an impact that isn't related to regulating the platforms themselves. The last thing I would say, unrelated to the information environment or even the foreign influence campaigns and outside actors, governments really need to reinvest in civic education and critical thinking for the entirety of a student. Uh, academic life. This really applies in the United States because I think a lot of other countries, Taiwan is actually in pretty good shape in this sense. In the United States, the, our education system has diminished the amount of civic education uh, that we provide to our kids. And that makes it really hard for to instill critical thinking as a habit. So 
my biggest recommendation out of all of these is that governments emphasize civic education critical thinking for the entirety of a student's academic life. It's really important to get that as a habit. It's interesting that you mentioned civic education because based on what you said earlier, a lot of these sources of disinformation have mostly domesticized and grown organically from U.S.-based cells. What advice would you give to the audience living in democracies? For example, I do not own a media outlet and I do not have political power. I'm not a politician. So what can I do? Excellent question. Uh, it's something I struggle with every day, actually. Um, so first, I would say, if you don't know a source of information, question it. Even if it's from your best inf- uh, best friend or a close family member, if they can't give you the source, then you shouldn't necessarily buy into it. Uh, one of the more recent trends we've also found is in terms of platforms is disinformation moving from public spheres like Facebook posts and Twitter to private messaging services like WhatsApp. Uh, In Brazil in 2018, in India in 2019, WhatsApp became a major vector for problematic information. And And it affected the elections there in the sense that we know that disinformation and misinformation was so widely spread that it had to have had some form of impact. We can't, we can, we don't know what size, but we do know that it was large enough and problematic enough. Um, and WhatsApp is a pr- pretty unique case because users are going to trust the source of that information in terms of the sender of that information because it's most likely from a friend or even a close family member. So I have trouble with receiving um I have trouble with receiving problematic content at times myself. Uh, my own biases often make me want to share something that I really want to be true, but is not. Uh, which brings me to my second recommendation, which is to be aware of your own biases. Just because something doesn't fit your worldview, it doesn't mean that it's not true. Uh, you need to be willing and open to changing your mind when presented with facts. I would also caution for listeners in Taiwan in particular to avoid knee-jerk reactions on social media as well. I, I want to caveat that by saying I am not referring to anybody in particular or even implying that it's more than a handful of people. But the DFR lab in research did see uh, some Taiwanese social media users attack other users on the same platforms for posting even marginally positive thoughts about China. That type of attack is not helpful, uh, which brings me to my final two suggestions. The first one, and they're related. The first one is you need to hold politicians, celebrities, and others who, uh, other high-profile profile people who spread disinformation accountable. If there is no accountability, the purveyors of this information will only see an upside to the attention it garners. So related to that, my final recommendation is to hold family and friends accountable as well. Um, That might mean that you need some idea of how to deprogram. You need understanding mixed with that accountability. A lot of belief in disinformation is based on feeling. And the first way you can go wrong when combating it is to invalidate a person's feeling. Uh, A good example of this is my colleague at the DFR lab, Andy Carvin, wrote a piece uh, that we posted to our Medium page about QAnon in the aftermath of the inauguration. Because what 
is has been widely reported is there are a number of QAnon believers who woke up, quote unquote, after the inauguration. They realized that the tenets of the conspiracy theory that is QAnon, which is in, which are impossible to explain in any coherent way because it's a conspiracy theory, um, that they were not real, that they were following, they were being led down a rabbit hole that was not real. And so when they finally came up and emerged, they were distraught and they were upset. And if you go in and you try to reach out to them, and the first thing you do is say, you are stupid for following QAnon, you're not going to succeed in helping them come back out of that. You need to approach them with understanding. And that does not necessarily mean that you validate their belief in this in the theory that is the absolute wrong thing to do, but you do need to come to them empathetically and try to understand their position without validating those same beliefs that were wrong to begin with. Thank you very much again for coming to our show and sharing your interpretations on the findings and philosophy on countering disinformation. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Weekend Policy Brief. Until next time.